Between April 2020 and March 2021, 23,226 teenage pregnancies were recorded by the Gauteng Health Department. 934 of these girls were between the ages of 10 and 14. There has been shock and outrage, finger-pointing and blame, but what is being done? Today we have the conversation of how we are failing our children. We welcome into studio Dr. D. Blackie and Talia Jade Magus. Welcome Dee and Tully, uh, long-term colleagues of mine. Dr. Dee Blackie is a child protection researcher and community worker in Johannesburg, South Africa. Following a 15-year career in business consulting and change management, she started working with communities concerned with child protection, child abandonment and adoption in 2010. Her master's research explored the lived experience of, of child abandonment and adoption in South Africa and her PhD research has taken her into the field of disability with a specific focus on atypical children and critical autism studies. Tully Jade Magnus is a child protection advocate who has spent years working within the legal social work system aimed at supporting and caring for abused and vulnerable children. She teaches yoga and mindfulness to children at Fight with Insight in the inner city of Joburg. She's a play therapist and social worker and she runs her own yoga and healing space in Joburg. She believes strongly in accessing the potential of every human being and is dedicated to healing one child at a time. And as of now, she's been the family therapist at a Kiso Crescent Clinic for about a year. Welcome to Dee and Tully. Thank, Thank you, you for having us. So Dee and Tully, just, I mean, either of you can take the first question, but I think the, the kind of outrage that we see when statistics are released is almost released, almost kind of belies the lived experiences of these young, these young people. So both of you have been involved in various contexts with um, unplanned pregnancies where there may have been abandonments or unplanned pregnancies where there needed to be social work services rendered. What do these 23 plus thousand unplanned pregnancies translate into for the lived experience of a person that is having an unplanned pregnancy? Um, well, for me, I think that it speaks to um, the lack of, of care and support for young people um, when they engage um, in sexual experiences and within their communities. Um, and the lack of guidance that they receive from their um, communities and adult structures around them um, that allow them to be in situations that are unplanned that um, do result in them having um, babies that they haven't planned for. Yeah, I think certainly during my research, I've always been astounded at the complete lack of understanding and knowledge of just simple stuff like how babies are made. and. Um, you know, you can have sex once and you can fall pregnant. Um, this is something that many young people don't know. Um, and, you know, when you ask teachers, why don't they know the stuff that should be in our ELO curriculum? Um, the teachers tell us, you know, we're, we're embarrassed, we're parents too. This is the job of parents. And when we speak to the parents, the parents say to us, well, that's the job of the school. And then, of course, when the school does try and address issues like understanding your body and how your body changes and sexual health and so on, the families then, the, the, the parents get upset and uh, start accusing the schools of, um, you know, teaching their children about sex and encouraging them to have sex. So it's a real conundrum at the moment around whose responsibility is it to actually guide children in this process of sexual awareness and understanding and health. 
And I think that probably is a is a critical point because what we're seeing with the kind of backlash with comprehensive sexuality education is a poor understanding by adults of the development of children, particularly sexually. You know, we are happy to send our children who have low muscle tone to physios or poor pincer grip to OTs. But when children's sexual development seems to sort of not be in keeping with their developmental stages, parents almost like freak out where it becomes moralizing, it becomes sort of closing down of conversations, the idea that, as you said, having conversations encourages sex. But what we know from good research, and sadly it's research into abandonment, abuse, etc., sexual abuse specifically, is that good knowledge in fact reduces sexual risk-taking behavior. How do we land this with parents without feeling like we are moralizing against them because the danger is we can also come across as being moralizing by saying oh you know we the developmental specialists not taking into consideration the complexity of the conversations around sexuality as a parent coming from a country where most of us our age not you uh, Tully the rest of us most of the people our age grew up in the time of an immorality act where talking about sex and sexuality just did not happen so our parents don't have a language for this what, what do we do to shift that thought well, that's the thing. I think that we have to acknowledge that sexual development is a natural part of development. We can't get rid of, um, you know, that part in, in, in teenage development. Um, and I think that, you know, by not talking about it, uh, especially in today's time, kids have access to so many things through social media and through um, all kinds of other avenues. Um, so if we don't engage children in these conversations ourselves and give them the correct terminology and the correct information, they will find it themselves. And most of the time, then they'll find it in places that they shouldn't be finding it or they'll find incorrect information. So we really don't have a choice. We have to acknowledge that this exists and we have to be having these conversations. Um, we're not in the age anymore where we can hide children away from information because we have access to so much now that they will find it on their own. Well, I was just going to add to that and say yes. I mean, I think one of the big things is it's 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 also about identity, and um, I think we, you know, especially when children hit their teens and puberty, they're not just um, working out who they are; they're working out who they are sexually, and um, and we're not allowing them the space to have that conversation, and we're forcing them into roles that they are not comfortable in, and that leads to all sorts of of challenges later on in life. Um, you know, we're constantly, uh, I heard a psychologist once talking about how, you know, he, he, it's almost like you're sitting at a river and there's a child floating down the river past you and you pull the child out the river and you save the child and you think, thank goodness, the next thing is there's another child and you spend the whole day pulling the children out the river and we're not going upstream and asking ourselves, who's throwing the children mm. in the river? And unfortunately, we as societies are actually throwing the children in the river because we're not giving this information to them. We're not helping them to develop healthy sexual identities um, and I think that there's something in because I don't think their parents did it either there's m maybe something in actually having very honest open conversations and facilitating honest open conversations within families between mothers and daughters and fathers and sons where we can actually have these open conversations and we can understand because there's healing needed on both sides mm -hmm. um, it's not just the children that we need to think about um, they're growing up in a context that's pretty toxic at the moment 
Dee, that's such a great analogy. And I think if we could really look at moving upstream before we throwing our children into that river. And something that you touched on earlier, you said teachers don't want to do it because they are embarrassed. And I think parents are embarrassed too. And um, Luke said earlier, you know, if your child has low muscle tone, they go to an OT. If they have speech impediment, they go to a speechy. But what do we do? do? Do we then bring in a team of, of experts into schools who, who know how to speak to children about sex and sexuality, in, include the parents in that? Because I do believe to leave the parents out of that conversation is, is trying to fish the kids out halfway through because we all have to have that conversation. But then the barriers as we go along, as Luke said, are our own morals and our own views on sex and sexuality. So would almost like a, a power team, I know FAMSA does it, but to go into schools and to, to educate the teachers and the parents and the children, would, would that be something that we could maybe look at? You know, I, in my experience, it's always a little bit often. So it's about saying all of the above. Um, you know, what is the role of and responsibility of teachers? What's the role and responsibility of parents? How can we start communicating this more broadly through social media and positive social media as opposed to pornography, which is where I think most of our children are getting their sex education from at the moment? Um, you know, I think it's, it's really about uh, creating positive role models and role models who are able to communicate about their sexuality, their sexual identity, their sexual health, but in a healthy way. Because I think often, um, you know, we, we tend to, it's, it's quite binary. We tend to go to one extreme or the other. We're either saying absolute abstinence and no children should be having sex or even thinking about it, which we know is absolutely impractical. Or we go to the other extreme where, you know, it's, it's a lot of information for children to take in. There's, and, and it does lead to them asking more questions. And we're almost introducing them to too much information too soon, um, which then is quite scary for them and it's certainly very scary for their parents so so it's it, it has to be part of their growing up experience I often get asked when do I start talking to my children about sex and I'm like from the start you know when they're looking at their bodies name their body parts correctly um, talk to them about healthy body changes um, ex understand what's happening to them um, as, they, as they start engaging in attraction and uh, intimacy talk to them about that um, so it's a slow and gradual process and it should be coming from lots of healthy sources but as with all things these days a lot of the information our children digest is from unhealthy sources mm. who have very different objectives that have do not have your children's sexual health and well-being in mind when they're communicating with them. And I'm not just talking about pornography here. I'm also talking about magazines and Instagram where they're getting negative body images um, and negative sense of self in terms of how they look and what their body should look like as opposed to the fact that their bodies are perfect just the way they are and things like that. I'm I mean, I think we often get caught up in, you know, where's the monster? And to be honest, the monster's everywhere, but the solution's actually everywhere. Mm. And so we need to start thinking more holistically about it. Yeah, I think that I have to agree. And I was thinking as well when you were speaking, we did some research um, over the last few years about um, sexual health and family planning with kids in the inner city. And what a lot of them had said was that they receive some kind of education or some kind of program once at school. And it's more of like a checkbox um, program that, okay, we've done it and we've told them about sex. 
Um, but it doesn't follow them through the life cycle of their sexual development. So they might be thinking about one thing in, you know, grade nine, and they have the program, but by grade 10 and 11, they're thinking about a whole bunch of other things that get missed. So it really does need to be a holistic, ongoing conversation as opposed to a program and we tick the box and we say, okay, we've done it, and then we move on. Look, I think, Tully, that, that for me has become the big issue because it's how we teach children to think is what seems to be missing. There's, there's lots of stuff that we inadvertently send messages about. For example, when we had all of these statistics released, there was a thing about, you know, these children are all being abused. So these children are all victims of abuse. Very little understanding of our law and ages of consent and what it means to have restorative processes or processes that aren't moralizing or punitive. Um, the idea that um, the, well, Texas now, although they've sort of put a, a stop to it for the moment, but there's this thing that's going back to say if you have a baby, if you fall pregnant, you have to have the baby. Termination is not an option. The idea that if you have a teenage pregnancy, you've ruined your life. There's, there's nothing about how to think about conceiving babies. So you and I had this discussion a while ago about conceiving children in mind. So babies come from having sex. That's the first thing they need to know, which often they don't know. And Babies come from sex, but what happens when the baby comes? Now, do you have any thoughts around how we talk to teenagers about how to think about being a parent as one of the possible consequences of pregnancy? We acknowledge the pleasure of sex. I don't think anybody has an issue acknowledging it. But there are other potential outcomes, and how do we help them think about those in the, that those moments of passion or even if it is abuse or if it is something that is seen as contractual almost, you know, as in the blesser kind of scenario. Yeah, I think that it's a very difficult one. Um, and I know that we, we have spoken about it many times and we've said, you know, I think when teenagers or young people are in that moment, they don't think that a baby is about to come or could come or may come or, you know, they really don't. It's the last thing that they're thinking about. They only think about it when they suddenly realize that they're pregnant and now they have to face this. Um, you know, so how do we get young people to, to, to actually realize um, and have their baby in mind? And, and, and we've spoken about, um, you know, um, um, engaging young people in what it means to have a baby and what it means to have a family. Um, and what you see for your own life, one of the things that our, our participants in our research had said, which was really kind of beautiful and carried me through the whole research, was that if you have an identity and you know who you are before you start engaging in, in these kinds of things, um, you're already going to be thinking, but I have dreams, I have goals, I don't want to be you know, becoming a parent at this age, or I don't want to be having a baby. So I think you did say it already, Dee, but it, it really does come to your identity and having value for yourself and knowing who you are within your community and who you want to be. Um, but it is difficult because there is a very big disjoint, you know, between the baby and sex when actually it's mm -hmm. the same conversation. Dee, this is something that you have studied extensively. So these 23,000 very young girls who've had babies, what happens to those babies? So, I mean, I think, and, and what happens to the girls, I guess. is no, that, absolutely, yeah, what yeah. happens to the girls, So, so sure. I think um, I think this is one of, it, it is a big challenge. I come from a background of child protection, um, so I work in the space of 
child abuse and neglect and exploitation. And I guess crisis pregnancy falls into each of those spaces. So yes, neglect, because when being neglectful in terms of educating our children and providing them with good contraceptives and so on. Um, child abuse, because I think many of these pregnancies are a result of abuse. I think we don't realize the extent of transactionality that ex exists in the context of teenage pregnancy. And this is not about children going out and being prostitutes. This is about a child being left in the home environment for the purposes of an older person to do whatever they want because that older person is providing financial support to the family and everyone just closes a blind eye. Um, this is about mothers saying, I'll pay for your taxi fare to go there, but you'll need to find your way back. Um, how is a child supposed to negotiate that without any money? Um, you know, I often get asked about this question of sugar daddies and people saying, oh, you know, um, girls do it for cell phones and for airtime and for money and things. But in fact, in my experience, and I work a lot with communities, many of those sugar daddy relationships are negotiated by the child's parent or caregiver. So it is agreed between the child's parent that you will be with this person and this person will support our family financially. So and in those situations, most of those young girls are not not able to negotiate condom use or um, birth control and so on. So you're actually, I mean, the child, all of their agency is taken from them um, and they're told that, that the family is relying on them. So, so I think it is complicated. Um, you know, yes, I do think, I also think there's a number of extraneous factors that we need to be aware of, things like the levels of alcohol abuse in this country, which not only leads to, I mean, I know that uh, uh, parents who abuse alcohol, you're increasing the chance of your child being sexually abused by a horrific statistic. It's something like between 70 and 80%. So, so there are a number of issues around that. There are also a number of issues of, of you know, young girls drinking excessively and, you know, binge drinking especially, which leads to risky sexual behavior and, and not making choices. So there's a number of extraneous factors, poverty and inequality quality is obviously a major challenge and we deal with all of these issues very much in within the context of South Africa so we can't be talking to young people about sex without talking to them about all these other things as well like you know what do you want to be when you grow up how can we support you financially uh, to ensure you know majority of children in this country grow up without both of their parents um, over 60 percent grow up without both parents. So they're either growing up, I think it's just over 30% grow up with just their mothers and just over 20% grow up with with neither parent. So so we've got some big issues to deal with and the result is, you know, the, the consequence is things like teenage pregnancy. And I actually think what we need is a total revamp of how we think about children and natality and how we bring children into the into the world. I think it's it's very caught up in our history and in our economic challenges and, and we need to rethink it because, you know, also turning, t turning around to children and saying having children is bad means that people are having children much later and later and later, and that also has consequences. Mm -hmm. so, so we need to really have a revamp and a rethink about how we're looking at child, children and childbirth and family in the context of our country and what's important to us and our value systems. Yeah, no, I absolutely agree because, you know, I don't think it's something we do. It's absolutely everything. Mm -hmm. And it's tied up into how we think, it's tied up into what agency we believe we have, it's tied up into ideas of future money, um, ability to control impulses, there's a whole million set of things. So I think, you know, that's, 
the moving forward is about how do we get children to develop most appropriately, develop good relationships with adults so that they can be assisted to think about things as opposed to just act out. And for that you need illuminated adult witnesses around you and those are clearly lacking within many of our young people. So sort of in wrapping up, we go back to the 23,226 number. And the thing that concerns me about that number is that, as my first comment said, those are 23,000 teenagers. And those 23,000 teenagers each now have a child. Where are these 23,226 young people? Because if we look at something like Belsky's War Cycle or the World of Abnormal Rearing, the chance of this pattern repeating itself if we don't intervene is just extremely high. So if the government has these statistics, what are they doing to deal with the high-risk pregnancies that have occurred? Dee, I'll let you take this one, but I did just want to add when you were speaking, you know, we're talking about breaking the cycle, which Luke, you just said, and at the back of my mind I was thinking, did these kids' parents have family planning? So this is the cycle already, but I'll let you take the question. So, I mean, obviously, many of those children will get absorbed into their families. And, you know, we have a lot of child circulation in this country. Uh, you know, there'll be extended family members will take care of them. Um, and they will become part of growing families of, and, and as you say, the chance of it repeating is 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 high. Um, obviously, in the in the really negative scenario, which is an area I work in quite a lot, there's the potential for the children to be abandoned, and we see a lot of that in South Africa. Um, I p firmly believe that abandonment is an indicator of poverty. Um, often, women are making desperate choices and desperate decisions, and I guess my question is always, where's the community in this? How come children are falling pregnant, uh, bellies are growing and then disappearing and no one is asking questions? And yes, we know that a number of children are abandoned into care, probably around um, 3,000 children a year in this country, although government is yet to keep give us proper statistics on that. Um, but the reality is, is that many die. And it's devastating. Um, you know, we really do have a crisis around late abortion and, um, and, and child abandonment. Um, and it's just important to note that often late abortion, third trimester abortion, many of those children survive. It's why my later research was into um, atypical children, developmental delays and, and neurodevelopmental disorders because many of these children are born with neurodevelopmental challenges. And they are going to be a burden on our society because they are going to have a disability probably pretty much for the for the whole of their lives. They're going to be growing up in institutions and uh, and we're going to have to take care of them. It's our responsibility. And once again, I get back to why aren't we going upstream and not looking at who's throwing the children in the river because it's all of us and we must all take responsibility. I think I'll leave the final comment then to you, Tully. Because I think the one thing that Dee has started alluding to, but you and I deal with quite a lot, is that the abandonment and the, the poverty is, is one really big issue. But we see people who don't want their children kill them and mercilessly torture them to death over a period of time. So I mean, maybe just a concluding comment on that, because that really for me is the cautionary tale around what the most severe outcome of this is. Yeah, I mean, there's one thing to have an unplanned pregnancy, but an unplanned pregnancy can become wanted. But an unplanned pregnancy who is in an unwanted pregnancy has 
parents in a space or a parent in a space with a child that they don't want. And the outcome of that is horrific. Um, we see many children who are severely abused, who are murdered, as you've just said. Um, and the, the, the starting point of that is desperation, is parents who just don't know how to care for the child that they never wanted in the first place. Um, and many of these children die because they were murdered, because they were abused. Talian D, it's a very difficult conversation. It's not a 25-minute conversation. And hopefully it will spark with our listeners a thought process. And I think it would be ideal if we could perhaps in a month or so pick up the conversation again, because this really is something we need to look at um, really, really closely. And change has to start with us. So already the three of you are working extensively in this space. But just as a parent, what can I be doing differently within my own family to, to empower my children and, and to make sure that um, sex is safe and, and sex is communicated as, as really what it is. So Tali and Dee, thank you ever so much for joining us in studio. And thank you very much from our side as well, Tali and Dee. It's always an absolute honor to work with the two of you. And uh, I've often been called the canary in the mine shaft. So, you know, yeah, the three of us are as the canaries in the mine shaft saying we have an issue here, but the, the warning signs are there. Let's see what we can do about it. Because ultimately, you know, people talk about children being our future, but they're actually our present. And if we don't assist our children now, we're just going to have generations of challenges. So good luck with your work. Thank you for your time. And we'll chat again soon. Thank you very much. Thank you.